Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. My name's Ben. I'm a vicar in Manchester Diocese. I'm from the Northwest, born in Preston. Moved to Manchester when I was 19, spent many of my 20s in Manchester. Um, and you are here today if we're talking about church planting. And just to get a little bit of a, a scope on who's here, put your hand up if you've been in a church plant for a long time. Put your hand up if you've been in a church plant for around three-ish years, three to five years. Put your hand up if you've been in a church plant for not very long at all. <laughs> That's on the recorder now. Put your hand up if you've, if you've never been in a church plant. And then finally, put your hand up if, you, if you're about to start something that might look like a church plant. Brilliant. That's good to know, good to know, because what we're going to do... Go on, mate. We were in a church plant called Good to hear, mate, yeah. And we're going to touch on some of that. Um, the way we're going to do this, the way I often do things like this, is, is uh, we're all experts in the room, aren't we? You are. You've got experience. Even if you've been on your estate for a year, you've got experience. And actually, the beautiful thing about being on estates is you only have to be there for a day to taste life in all its extremities. Um, uh, so what we're going to do is I'm going to just take us through a bit of the story of our church plant in Bolton. And uh, excuse the rabble at the front. These are some of the soldiers from Bolton. So they're, they're, they're a bit noisy. Excuse them, please. Just pray for them. Um, but, but I'm going to just take you through the story of, of our church plant and then I'm going to take some side steps and just draw out some principles that we've learned, some things along the way and at that point I'm going to get you guys to share amongst yourselves as well and, and then share with the wider group some of the things that maybe you're reflecting on is that okay? because I'm, I'm, I'm not really interested in one person at the front speaking the whole time and then there'll be some space at the end for some Q&A, some questions and some of your own responses as well some of your own thoughts, some of the things you've learned um, does that sound good? Yeah. So if you've got questions, just lodge them and, and we'll, we'll bring them out at the end, particularly. <laughs> so just to introduce me and my wife, Amy, we, um, when I, I was baptised at 16, I became a Christian at 16 in Preston. And then um, literally two weeks later from that, I heard the Lord speak really clearly and say to me, um, you're going to spend your life on council estates, really clearly. I had the privilege of being brought up in a suburban, quiet estate in Preston. And two weeks later, I went on a placement, a mission trip to Manchester from Preston. And I lived in a place called Newton Heath in Manchester, in about 95 it was. Um, and I remember li uh, living in this old woman's house who had a doll room. Has anyone been in one of those houses? <laughs> a room full of dolls. Yeah, it sounds as creepy as it, it was. <laughs> And, I, and it wasn't just creepy because of that, because there was one night when I was stood outside and three balaclavered young men came into my eyesight and uh, just went on and uh, robbed the, the newsagents opposite like it was something they did most weekends. They strolled out of there with some bits and pieces and walked off. And I remember changing my underwear and then <laughs> taking, taking a moment with the Lord and it, and it was like the Lord saying, this is the new world I want you in. 
Um, and since, ever since that point, that's what I've, me and Ames, she had a very similar experience and a similar calling. We've done that. We've, um, we've been Eden team leaders for most of our 20s in uh, Old Trafford in Manchester. And then the, in that time, we knew we'd be part, we'd, we'd been called to establish church on estates. Because as many of us know, the church has fled our council estates. And, um, and so we knew that we'd be involved in establishing church on estates. And within that, um, the Lord started to whisper that maybe it was to become a vicar, which was hilarious. Even more hilarious for my wife, who's a vicar's daughter. And if you've got it in your family, you know the ups and downs of what it means to be a vicar. And so I explored that and it seemed to me that it, it, it seemed to be that it was the Lord's idea. So I went off to train, had three years sabbatical in suburbia in Nottingham and then came back to Bolton where we um, uh, moved to a, a little area called Astley Bridge and Oldham's Estate. And, uh, and that's where we've been for the last five years, um, planting this church called Oldham's Church. Now it means everything to people who are from Astley Bridge and Bolton, Oldham's, but nothing to anyone else. All the time people say, so it's really good the work you're doing in Oldham. And I say, no, no, we're not in Oldham, we're in Bolton, Oldham's estate. So this is Oldham's church. Um, but I've been, so I've been living and working on estates for a little while now. And the problem with that is you develop a tool bag. And the problem with the tool bag is sometimes it can negate your reliance on the Lord Jesus and his, and his ministry. Because I've found that often the Lord will want to do something completely different with you than what you've got in your tool bag. And that happened to us when we got to Bolton. We had, you know, 15 to 16 years experience of being on the States. So we had all these ideas, things that we tried on the States, approaches, different activities. And really quickly, the Lord said, zip the bag up and throw it out for a moment and learn how to pray. Learn how to pray. And so what we did there, we moved into the area and there was a, literally a handful of us. Um, another family who are sat in this room right now, this man in front of me and Donna at the back and their kids. We had a couple of older ladies as well who were part of the parish church in the community, lived on the estate. So we gathered this core group of us. And that's what we did. We learned how to pray again, learned how to be family again, um, in our front room on Mackenzie Street. The problem is so often we want to do great things for Jesus, don't we? And I don't think that desire is a bad desire. But we put the cart before the horse. Um, everything we, have to do, we do as Christians has to be rooted in prayer. There's that verse, isn't there? That haunting verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, which says, pray unceasingly. <laughs> How are you doing with that? I wanted you to share in a moment. Um, we hear that verse and we, maybe we feel guilty. Our eyes are drawn to our lack of prayer. Um, but, but I want each of us to hear the whisper of the Spirit saying, come and learn to pray again. Because prayer is a, is a big world. It opens our eyes to the fact that it's not about us. It opens our eyes to the fact that the Lord Jesus has been working in this community long before we arrived and long after we go. It, it opens our eyes to, to see that it's his ministry and he's going to do some stuff and we get to join in. Um, so for me, prayer is about two things. Intimacy with Jesus and obedience to Jesus. Like what Pod said before, that was powerful, wasn't it? Just 
just to be with Jesus. Have you heard the song that's doing the rounds at the moment? Um, Nothing else matters, just being with you, Jesus. It's a powerful song. Um, but it's also about obedience, isn't it? John 15, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. This is how you remain in my love, by com- keeping my commands. Obedience. Jesus is going to tell you to do things for him. Your love for him is going to be tested in your obedience to him. He's going to ask you to do uncomfortable things. And, and Jesus is literally daring you to submit to him. Every day, isn't it? Because he knows what you look like if you are dead, basically. He knows what you look like if you're submitted fully to him. And it's the way we were designed to live, wasn't it? Fully submitted. Um, so, so my question for you then is, how is your prayer life? Genuinely, how is it? It's the age-old question, isn't it? <laughs> how, how are you doing with the Lord? Well, I should read my Bible more. Well, I should pray more. It's, it's, it is literally the foundation for everything we do. It has to be. Um, th- Paul's three missionary journeys from Antioch. Catalogued for us in the book of Acts. Acts 13, Acts 16 and Acts 18. Are all grounded in an intimacy and obedience to the Holy Spirit. In a foundation of prayer. Just have a read of some of them. Um, And so everything we do has to be born from prayer. And so I want you to just take a moment. Maybe you want to do this on your own. Um, Maybe you find it helpful to talk to someone around you just to sort of bring some of this stuff out. Just think about how your prayer life is. And the question really, the deeper question is in that is, how is everything you're doing immersed in prayer, submerged in prayer, born out of a place of prayer? Is what you're doing the Lord's idea, genuinely? What has the Lord said about it? Because the Lord is in the business of often saying, stop, just wait. The Lord said that to Paul, didn't he? He said the Spirit restricted them from going to particular places. So is that okay? Take a moment, maybe three or four minutes, just to talk with the people around you, have a moment to yourself. How is your prayer life? Go, you've got a few minutes. So I, for me, people often come to me and sort of ask me about ministry and stuff and say, what, what's the key thing? What's the, what's the magic bullet? And there isn't a magic bullet really, is it? But I, I think this one is one of them, possibly. Like if, you, if you don't learn how to pray properly, then just go home, seriously. Like, like just, it's not about us and our ministries. It's about the Lord Jesus and his kingdom and what he's doing in our estate and, and having eyes to see it. And the only way you're going to have eyes to see it is if you pray. Um, so that's the first one if, if there's only one thing you want to take from this take that one simple isn't it come to a seminar by an expert and he tells you to pray flip in it get a grip um, so our, our story continues and, and me and Ames and our kids John and Don and their kids and a couple of older ladies and then another couple joined us a, a, a little later we started to meet in our front room and the front room and that place of prayer we'd have food together and then we'd just sit down with the kids in the, on the floor and we'd just pray and it became a metaphor, it became the engine room for what the Lord was asking us to do. Um, and in that room was a lot of activists, let me tell you. People who were, who, who were wanting to just get out and get on with it. But the Lord regularly stopped us from that. Which is interesting, isn't it? Um, and I'd say we probably did that for about 18 months. 
every week, prayed. And a lot of things happen in that time, doesn't it? You learn that it's not about you. You learn to rely on God. And, and we had lots of beautiful times there. And one vision we had was um, just a, a, a supernatural vision of what the Lord is doing in our communities, that often he's working underground, especially in the, in the more broken places. He's working underground, and, and it's, it's up to his followers to identify when it's ready to build on his foundations and the particular activities that those things might be. And he was saying to us, I'm, I'm working underground on this estate. And maybe you need to hear that right now for your place, that the Lord is working underground, building foundations. Whether you see it or not, he's there. Trust me, he is. Um, so we continue to do that. And, and, and we, we, we almost sort of bashed out three, three things that were going to identify who we were. And those three things are really simple. The first one is community. Being the radical family of Jesus. That's, if we're going to do anything, we're going to do that. That was the first thing. Secondly, discipleship. Learning how to follow Jesus together. Whether you've been a Christian 20 years or 20 months, learning how to follow him. And the third thing, mission, that we were going to learn how to share Jesus in word and deed with the people that were around us, friends and neighbours. Like, if we were going to do anything, it was them three things. I wasn't interested, to be honest, if it was anything else. Um, and like I said, we held off doing some stuff. We, we, we had to learn to wait, basically, to hear the Lord. And when he said, we'd go... Um, and then it just got to the point where we, we started to sense that it was right to do some more public things, I guess you'd call them, wouldn't you? Um, we started to do things like this, just almost presence ministry, mercy ministries on the estate. We'd do stuff at Halloween. We had the first Halloween thing we did. We just got out and treated the estate. It's not like rocket science, is it? Just got out and got a few buckets of sweets and said, look, we just want to show you some love. We're, we're Oldham's church. We're the Church of Jesus Christ on this estate. And, um, and had some amazing conversations. In fact, one conversation we had was with a relative of this man down here. We, um, a guy's called Lee, and he doesn't mind me sharing this story. I've asked him many times. And uh, um, that week before Halloween, he'd, um, he'd done a deal with God, he says, his own words. He, he wasn't particularly Christian. Maybe had some Catholic tendencies in there from his past, I don't know. And he, he, he did a deal with God. He said, Lord, Lord God, whoever you are, I, I'm, I need some work. I, I need work, basically. I'm, I'm struggling. I've got family to provide for on that. And if you can provide me with some work, then his words, I will give my life to you. That, that was his phrase. Um, he, he prayed that. And the week just before Halloween work started to flood in for him. He was self-employed, he's a, he a glazer. And actually since then, which was probably four and a bit years ago, he's worked pretty much non-stop. And then three days later, the Christians boot his door off and say, we're Christians on the estate and we, um, we're here just to sort of show you that we, we care for you. And, he, and his face, it was Amy actually that had the conversation with him and wife was just like, I've just done a deal with, with your God. And I think I might need to fulfill my end of the bargain. And we'll come back to that story in a moment. Um, so we did other things like that. We, um, uh, this, is, this is our Valentine's treating, where we just get a whole stack of love bags, basically. And we'd go around the estate, and we'd ask the estate to nominate someone they know for a love bag. Again, it's not rocket science. 
But you knock on someone's door and say, your neighbor has nominated you for a love bag. You watch what that does to that person. We had people crying on the doors, didn't we? Just the idea that someone, their neighbor, would, would nominate them for something like that. You know if you've been on estates, relationships on estates are frayed often. And so to try and rebuild some of that was just an easy win, you know. It was just... Uh, and we did other things like this. We did a Christmas live nativity where we, um, we just sang carols on the estate. It was proper awkward at times. This guy called Adrian brought a big speaker down. I didn't know he was going to do it. And um, we, I knew we were going to sing some sort. We were going to act scenes out. Um, of the nativity and then in between it we might have sung some carols and Adrian brought this big speaker out and we were walking around singing these carols it was it it was it worked and we've been doing that every year ever since but then we got to the sense where we um we we recognized that the Lord was saying I want you to start public worship now I want you to start a, a space by which the estate will know that you're there that there's a regular place where they can come and encounter Jesus, a public space, an accessible space. And so we had, I think it was autumn in our minds, um, but the Lord said, no, that's the wrong time. You need to wait off a little bit. And it just transpired that our third child was born in September of that year. So the Lord has some wisdom, doesn't he? Nonetheless, we did start the church four months later in January. And we started our first public gathering. Do you remember it, guys? We, um, we gathered on a Sunday at three o'clock and it was, a, it was a random bunch of people. There was quite a lot of people there, actually. There's probably like 35 people. Um, a few pastors from the, lo- from, the, from the town who were just coming to love on us and support us. A few randomers. In fact, um, the first lady I would suggest in the history of the church that's come to a church event based on the back of a flyer going through a door. We put some flyers out and for some reason she read it <laughs> and came along. That name and the lady, was, she was called Jenny. She came along to our first one. And, um, and we started Sundays. Um, uh, and, so, and that first year of doing Sundays, maybe some of you are familiar with this experience, was, um, was a graft. Like the, we rented this community space, so we had speakers upstairs and chairs upstairs. Do you remember that? The days of chairs upstairs. And then... Um, and so we'd have to bring them down every week. And there'd be some weeks where it was 12 of us gathered. But the Lord said to do it, so we had to do it, didn't we? To be faithful. And there'd be some weeks where I'd, I'd be like, oh, maybe we just go back to home-based ministries. You know, it's loads easy. You don't have to set up anything. You just put your kettle on and then open a Bible or something. That's easier. That's my laziness streak. I don't know if you've got that laziness streak as well, that you revert to models of church that the Lord's not asking you to revert to. But we... Um, the Lord had asked us to do it, so we carried on doing it. Um, and we kept investing in those three things, what we were about. Community, discipleship and mission. Slowly but surely, people started to... to the only way to describe it is people started to be drawn. That's the only way to describe it. Um, the, Jesus talks about this in John 6, and we'll touch on this in a moment. People just started to... to find themselves at church on a Sunday. Um, And again, that testifies to the Lord's work. When he wants to do something, he'll do it. And you might have a year, you might have 10 years of just being faithful. But that's what the Lord's asked us to do, so that's what we do, isn't it? Um, There was um, a a number of people on our estate that we used to pray for. The the people that had links with us in in our core group. Um, people that we just saw out and about and we prayed for. And one person that we prayed for was a guy called Sean. 
And we used to see him, and, and Sean would wander. There's, there's wanderers on, on our estates, isn't there? And Sean was out and about a lot. He'd either be ferrying his kids to school, he'd be doing this and that. And all I remember one time was we'd, we'd see Sean. I remember one day I'd seen Sean and I'd say to the Lord, Lord, I don't have enough faith to believe that, G that Sean one day could be a follower of you. But I know that it's not about me and my faith. It's about what you can do. And, and all I remember the Lord saying was just pray for him. Just pray. He might pray for him for a decade and not see anything, but that's what the Lord's asked us to do, isn't it? And then, um, and then it was, I think it was like February or something, Kelly, his wife, shows up at church with their kids. They've got a stack of kids. And then I remember then the second week, Sean turned up. Kelly wasn't there. And I, I remember a few of us like, just grabbed him, basically, and said, what on earth are you doing here? That was, our welcome. that was our welcome to our church. What on earth are you doing here? And literally, he said, I don't really know. And, and he started coming, and then... And he came every week. And he, honestly, the first few weeks he'd say, I don't really know why I'm here, I just, I'm just here. Now, um, Sean had been at that point using heroin for 23 years. And indescribable for him, he said, he just started to stop using. Now, he, Sean had been in recovery many times. He'd tried recovery many times. He, was in, he, knew, he knew how to work that system. But for some reason, he started to come into the presence of Jesus' people. And he just, he's, to this day, he says, I don't know what happened. I just stopped using it. And, and here's the pre-warning. Sean's story of recovery is a miracle story. And 10 times out of 100, at one time out of 100, that might happen. The rest of the recovery stories are hard graft, daily grinds, ups and downs, getting back on your feet when you've had a relapse. For Sean, it, for some reason, it happened overnight with his heroin use. And we got him into, he got into treatment and stuff, so he started, he got, got on a script and stuff, and, and he got clean, and now he's been clean two years, two years of heroin. Um, now, if you know estates, you'll know that people are linked like a jigsaw. And, um, and people take notice when someone like Sean gets transformed. And, so, and, and at that point, I remember someone saying to me, come on then, what's your evangelism strategy? And, th and then I, I remember thinking, Lord, what's our evangelism strategy? <laughs> what is our evangelism strategy? And I, this is my next question. What is your evangelism strategy? Uh, because I, I think the Lord taught us an evangelism strategy. And it's this, it's in John 6. And it's where Jesus is talking about his relationship with the Father. And it's a deeply theological passage if you look at it, but it's also very practical for us as well. John 6 verse 40 says this. Jesus is proclaiming he's the Messiah, the Son of God, the bread of life. And he says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And then four verses later in verse 44 says this. And this is really key, I think. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And so the question for me, this is what evangelism I think is, who's next? That should be our evangelism strategy. Who's next? Because you, you either take what Jesus said as truth or you don't. And if it's true, that means that anywhere, at any one time, the Father is drawing someone to Jesus. Whether your estate looks bleaker than bleak, 
Whether your estate looks like a hard graft harvest field, somewhere someone is being drawn. And so what that should do is release you and empower you because it means that it's not all about you, trying to, trying to flip in strong arm people into the kingdom of God. It's, it's about you in prayer, having eyes to see who that might be. And it also releases you just to be friends to people. They might not be ready for, for receiving the gospel and giving their lives to Christ. And that's okay in here. Just be the friend, just love them. But who are those that are being drawn? And so I want you to spend maybe a moment or two um, just thinking about that question, maybe thinking about it in your community. Who is next? And maybe, maybe for you, you need to hear afresh that idea that there are people who will be drawn at some point. So just take three minutes to just have a think about that question with people around you who are on your own. Who's next? Evangelism strategy. Do I draw it to a close? I wonder if I could just get you back in the room. It feels like Oldham's church, goodness me. Noisy. I wonder what your response is to that question, who's next? Um, it's a question that we started to ask in our church in different ways. Um, my man John at the front, he won't like me doing this, apologies John, but um, John is an understated, passionate Christian who just wants to get on with the Lord's work. And one of those things, he's a passionate United fan. Lord have mercy. Um, and um, John started up a footy team. Because football is a great way of connecting with people in it. And, um, and we, I played in it for a couple of seasons and it was, yeah, <laughs> um, thank the Lord I'm out now and they're doing much better. But we, we're in a, like a five-a-side league and, and every week we just turn up, won't we? And, and John's been doing that now for a couple of years and you're into your like third season now, aren't you, mate? And, um, and John, in his own way, would ask, who's next, Lord? And one of those guys was a guy called Jamie Wenlock. And um, Jamie came to our church, connected to other people in our in our congregation and I remember coming to me actually first saying I'm at church but I'm an atheist you need to understand that you know those sort of people it's like yeah you, you can get along mate you have not got along and um, and John invested in him basically he'd, he'd come and play he'd be in the football team and that was one way that he really connected in and, and John would just spend his Monday evenings with him have a kick about have a meal with him last Sunday amazing wasn't it mate he stood up and said yeah, I don't think I'm an atheist anymore. In, in fact, <laughs> in fact, in the autumn, I'm going to reaffirm my baptism vows. John's face and Donna's face, and it's just, and Nadine's, his mum, it's brilliant. But Sean started to ask that question as well. I said to him, come on then, who's on your who's next list, mate? And he said, well, there's one guy, one guy called Jamie, and he's sat on the front row here. And then Jamie was a fighter, basically. He doesn't mind me saying this, by the way. Get permission for all your stories, by the way. That's one thing you need to do. But Jamie was a fighter. He used to walk down the centre of our street, to be honest. You know those sort of people that walk down the centre of the street, not on the pavement? Yeah, he's one of them. Yeah. You're like, drive the car away, walk away, move away, everybody. 
And then he was basically just a drinker and, a, and he used drugs and, and he basically had a fight most weekends at Aloe Cullen. And then, but Sean said, I think Jamie's next. I think we need to pray for him at the very least. And, and so, you know, Sean did. And, and I got a message from Sean one morning, at literally at 3 a.m. And when you get those sort of messages, you panic at first. But he says, all it says was, I think Jesus has got our Jamie. Yeah. And I was like, thanks, Sean, I'm now awake. I cannot get back to, oh, my word. And Jamie slowly but surely began to encounter Jesus and, um, uh, and give his life to Christ. And we baptised him. And then we, um, for Jamie, and it's right for some people, it was right that he got off the estate. He'd say himself that um, there's too much heavy temptation on the estate. Some of the temptations that, that many of us would not even begin to understand. And there is a time for some people where they need to get out and, I guess, be rebuilt. And so Jamie now is in the Oaks House, which is just across the way in Withenshaw with the Message Trust. And he, how long have you been there now, mate? Eight months. And then um, his life has seriously, dramatically changed. Like, again, people on the estate. You mean our Jamie? What is happening? Like, <laughs> like you, once you get one or two of those, those sort of things happening, the estate starts to take notice, do you know what I mean? Like, it might take notice of me because I'm a vicar and I've got a collar, but I'm, I'm not the same. Like, but your Sean's, your Jamie Wenlock's, your Jamie Gilpin's start getting transformed. People start to take a little more notice. And then, sorry, fellas, for doing this, but these two guys next to Jamie are basically kind of related to Jamie. And for Joe and Danny, it's the same as well. They've just started to meet Jesus and get their lives turned around by him. Like, it, it, the beautiful thing about estates is because people are so connected, when the gospel starts to change people, it does spread like wildfire in my experience. And I don't mean mass revival, I mean small revival, as in ones and twos coming to know Jesus and be transformed <coughs> by him. And so we, we started to continue to do stuff as church, um, focused around these three things, community, discipleship, mission. And so basically we, um, <laughs> there's Joe's mug shot there, look, there he is. And we, <laughs> and basically what, I, in my mind it was like, let's just try and do everything we can to fulfill those three things, whatever it is, football. As long as it meets those three things, let's just do it. Let's try loads of different ways to disciple one another. So we run home-based Alpha courses. We just, let's just get on with trying that. Just a side note on that. It's an urban myth that Alpha doesn't work on estates. It doesn't work on some estates. It doesn't work on some suburban places. It doesn't work in some prisons. But let me tell you, it does work in some places as well. Um, we, try, we do Alpha. We do other courses. We, do, we just try some stuff. Some stuff works. If it doesn't work, we stop it and try another thing. Try loads of different ways to disciple one another. Try prayer triplets. Try loads of different ways of doing mission. If it's just mercy, mercy ministries, being out and about on the streets. Just try loads of different ways. This is something we started called the apprenticeship with another church in Widnes, where we just recognised that it was almost like, it's almost like a discipleship boot camp for a lot of our guys. Like, um, they've never, they've not been brought up in the church. So like following Jesus is like totally new. So it's just, this, this is what we do on a Thursday, it's called The Apprenticeship. Joe and Kelly are on it at the moment and a few others. And, and it's where we just learn what it means to follow Jesus. It's a learning community. Just try anything is what we started. And then what we recognised was, um, as I read 
you might have done the same. You read the New Testament and you read, and particularly actually read some of the early church, the first 300 years of the church. And you'll notice something that they replanted very quickly. Like the, the, I don't know if you've read Rodney Stark's book about the early church. It's a fascinating book. I'd recommend it. He's a sociologist and a historian that just looks at the early church. And did you know it grew from, you know, approximately 120 on the day of Pentecost? By around 400 AD, they reckon it was up to about 6 million, between 4 and 6 million. And the way they did that, in the main, was planting, church planting. And for me, I, I, I recognise, as I looked at our church, Oldham's church, that the, the thing that was beautiful about it was because it was small. And what small does is it locks in the place for being Jesus' radical family, learning how to be Jesus' radical family, learning how to follow him and learning how to share with him. And so for us, we got to the point where we said, we don't want to get too big. And in fact, if we get to a size, a certain size, we want to be starting to think about planting out and going to do somewhere else. And so that coincided with um, a friend of mine, John, who had done something similar in Russia, and planting church amongst Muslims. And if you don't know already, the Lord is doing a miraculous work amongst Muslims. and uh, he's baptised 50 post-Muslims in Manchester. Whoa. Now, you won't hear that in, on Channel 4 because it's deeply offensive society, to society, that. But Muslims all across the place are meeting Jesus in their dreams, for example. And it's not just Iranians. In Bradford, I heard the other week, um, there is some South Asian, a community of South Asians, who, if you know that sort of community, are, are much more locked into the Islamic faith. They're coming to Christ themselves. So uh, he's doing something very similar. And, and for him, again, it, the church planting model was we need to stay small and replicate and keep replicating. So me and John got together. We'd known each other for a few years. And the Bishop of Manchester approached us and said, we want you to do replicate what you're doing across Manchester. And, and me and John looked at each other, scratched our heads and said, we, we just do church. We don't want to do like network stuff. And he says, no, no, we're going to apply for some money. In fact, it'll be really easy. You'll be able to get about a million quid to develop a network of church plants. I said, I don't want a million quid. <laughs> I don't want um, but it, it seems to be the Lord's will now. We've created this network called Antioch in, in Manchester Diocese where we're going to plant 16 congregations of small Jesus followers that are going to not get too big. 50 people, we reckon, and they need to be planting out. And, and uh, the idea is that we short, hot plant. If you've worked on estates, you'll know that estates are connected to other local estates. Like my Auntie Hilda, who lives over there, lives on that estate. We all have that. So we want to use those relationships and plant. So for us, in about two years, we reckon we're going to be planting into a neighbouring estate in Bolton. And so now we've developed this network. Um, And so for me, there's loads of models when it comes to church planting. And, And I want to suggest that all those models are really important. For us, especially in urban communities, it's easy to sort of decry some of those other models. Thinking resource church, I'm thinking mega staff teams that cost millions of pounds a year. It's not what I'm called to, but they're important and they work. But for me, I want to present a different model of church planting. To be frank, one that I feel I can see a bit more in the New Testament, that seems to have that smallness about it that replicates fast. And because of that smallness, it also allows lay leadership to be grown up indigenous leadership to be grown up a place where you can say if you're from the estate I could lead here I could do some stuff that I feel the Lord is asking me to do but the fourth sidestep I want to make is a difficult one because it's this hardship now if you've been on a state for a little while you'll know that hardship just comes with the territory 
But I want to suggest that as a Christian, you should know that hardship comes with the territory. Jesus promised it almost as a gift. That if you want it, like Sam said, if you, you're going to be conformed to the image of my son and you're going to share in his sufferings. And then um, John 15 says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. John 16 says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world, Jesus says. Acts 9, the Lord said to Paul, go for he is, talking about Paul, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. It's, it's littered through every book of the New Testament, isn't it? And the Old as well. Um, I want to introduce you to a guy called Sam. Um, Sam lived on our estate. He was a heroin user. He's a militant atheist, registered anarchist. I don't know, I didn't know anarch- anarch- I didn't know they had that sort of committee structure. But they do. Um, he, re- he reached out to the Christian church at one of the lowest points of his life, to parish church just down the road that we were part of and were partnered with. And um, he was from our estate, so we got connected with Sam and we got to know him as a church, as a friend. And many of us, he became one of our brothers, you know. Big Sam, he was six foot six, had big dreadlocks, ginger dreadlocks down to his knees. And then I remember sat in his flat on Athlone Avenue and he was literally weeping. Um, He'd just seen one of his friends OD and then later on die. Um, And I said to him, look mate, you're an atheist. And and he's a very intellectual guy. And I said, you've got your belief system set up. Great, sounds good. Let me offer you another belief system. That Jesus is Lord and he wants you he wants you for his kingdom and, and he's got a plan for your life that maybe you, you, you're yet to discover. And he's just weeping, saying, I'm an atheist, but I think you might, what you might be saying is true. And Sam just started to become part of our community and did Alpha and starts to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ for himself. And we go to the New Wine Festival last summer and he literally bounces up to me after one meeting. And when a six foot six guy with dreads bounces up to you, you get scared a little bit. <laughs> He literally just grabs me and says, I'm ready to be baptised. I'm ready to give my life to the Lord. It's time, Ben. And so we um, baptised him in September last year. And his, he, his family come with his dad and, and his mum are there. And his dad is a militant atheist. In the, he was in the military as well as being a militant atheist. And, he, and he, Sam grabs his dad by the face and says, Dad, I'm born again. You should try it. Aww. Sam struggled with his heroin use. Sam's wasn't like Sean's story in terms of his recovery. He struggled with his heroin use and his mental health, but he was one of our family. Um, In in October last year, I get a phone call walking down Bolton High Street with my youngest boy, Levi, that Sam's been found dead, overdosed in his house. And as a church community, that was possibly one of the hardest few weeks we've had for a long time. Um, And I remember I drove up to Winter Hill that night, which is a hill just next to our estate. I literally roared at God. It's okay to roar at God, isn't it? That's what the psalm tells us. I said, why did he have to suffer? Why did he have to die? We had the funeral in October. And I remember just sat there thinking, what's going on? And for, whether it's a tragedy like Sam, or the, the tensions of just being Jesus' family, of learning to love one another, that's what the beauty of church should be, isn't it? You learn how to love people that are different to you. You learn how to love people that wind you up. Jesus says, no, no, you don't get to run away from that. You, you have to learn to love each other. 
You run away, that's just escapism, that's not Christianity. Those hardships come with the territory. So the question is, how are you going to sustain yourself in the midst of that? Um, and, and I believe the Lord wants to meet us in the, in the midst of those moments and shoulder us, literally shoulder us through it. And for, for some people, it is, the decision is that they need to get out and, and leave because they themselves are going to die or burn out. That's, that's a hard decision to take, really hard decision to take. And when we did Eden, we, I would suggest that we were close to burnout at the end of our Eden time. And sometimes the Lord needs to take you out and rebuild you again. I'm not interested in, in Christianity. is not about being dead on our feet, is it? But there's something about hardship that comes with the territory. And so just take a moment or two, maybe on your own, to recognise that that is a reality and maybe talk with the people around you. How are you going to sustain yourself in that time? What do you need to do? Take a couple of minutes and then we'll carry on. Um, I'm going to finish in like three minutes, so there'll be time for some questions, answers and responses, thoughts, comments and stuff. Um, but I, 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 Sam had asked me just to write down some principles. And you know what? This, principles are great, but um, they're not rules. They're just things that we feel like we've learned and stuff. And, that, and they might look differently for you. And there might be others that you'd want to add and some that you might even want to take away and push against. But... Um, maybe you could have a think about some of the, maybe one principle that you've learned from being on your estate in terms of ministry. But I've just written down a few things. Um, I do think church is supposed to grow. I think if you look at the New Testament, there is something about the fact that church is supposed to grow. Now, and I don't mean, what I don't mean by that necessarily is hundreds and hundreds. I just think that, that new people should find church accessible, basically. And so with that in mind, we need to create pipelines in which they can learn how to be a follower of Jesus. Like, if they turn up on our Sunday and they say, right, now I need to learn how to follow Jesus, have you got the things in place for them to do that? Whether it's just relationships with someone, a mentor or a course, or what, what's in place to facilitate that? Another thing that I've, I've hinted at and I've said, I don't think churches necessarily need to be big. Chris Lane, a guy, I don't know if you've read his book, he, he's a great guy in Salford, a friend of ours, and he says that actually in the world, Big things aren't healthy. Now I'm going to say this with a pinch of salt, all right? I appreciate that. I do appreciate other models of church. You've, I've said that already in that. But often big things aren't actually that healthy, are they? And I, I'd suggest that in the New Testament we have a model there that I, I have sin work on estates, basically. Um, healthy churches welcome and journey alongside people. Like, like I've said, we don't get to run away from relationships. Like we look after one another, whether that's getting someone an Asda voucher when they're in need. That someone should come to our church and they should feel warmth. That's, that's one thing they should certainly feel. That, that when Jesus says, your love for each other will be a witness to the world, that, that's, that should be true of our churches. Um, healthy churches go through dark times. Either get ready for that or hear Jesus' encouragement if you're in the midst of that. Um, but alongside that, healthy churches know how to have a laugh. We've got to laugh more in our church. Like, we've got to be able to have fun. Like, there's moments where I, I have to stop myself and say, have I laughed much recently? Because if I haven't, then there's a problem. And so, if you need to, put on intentional spaces where you're just hanging out and laughing. Go and watch a film. Just, do some, just make sure there's a, there's a season and a humour there because it's going to carry you that humour.
Um, especially when there's pain around. Um, we do that now. We, we have one thing that we, we do every week. And I was thinking about this, guys. We've been doing this every week for five years. That we gather and we have food. And what we call it now is open house. Someone opens their home and we have food together. And there's no agenda. There's no Christian sort of meeting agenda. It's just, just to actually get to know one another as Jesus' family and have a laugh. Um, and we've done that now since we've been there. Um, healthy churches aren't always slick. I want to suggest that um, amateurism is something we should strive for in our public worship. Now, now I recognise that the value of excellence, we have it in our church, is important. That, but if something feels a bit more amateurish, then I have guys in my church say to me, I could do that up front. If it's too slick, I've found people say, that's going to take me a long time before I can get to a place to do that. Here's what I want to be excellent in. Fully surrendered to Jesus. If, if someone looks at my life, I don't want to be excellent at leading a public worship service. I want to be excellent in giving my life to Christ and dying every day. And so I would suggest that church doesn't have to be slick on a Sunday. And people often come to our church and that is certainly their experience. <laughs> um, we try to learn how to obey scripture. It's an obvious thing to say, but we, we learn together how to live underneath this thing. That like, we don't fanny around with this. Like, this is, this is something that we obey and that we live under. And it's a guiding document for us. And so all of us have to learn to handle this together, whether you've been a Christian 20 years or t- t- one month. It, it, we try and learn how to do this together. I think that's really important. And then another one, healthy churches nurture all types of leadership. That, that people often ask me, like, how do you, how do you see if someone's got leadership skills or, or any sort of gifting? Is just watch what they do. Like if someone does something, then that, for me that's proof that they've got some, something. There are some people who say, I feel like I've got a gift for this. Watch it in the life and you'll be able to affirm that basically. And then if it's there, start to just, to, just to encourage it and just to walk alongside them and be that friend, that critical friend at times, but also that supportive. Because it, we've got to have models for our estates where it doesn't just look like white suburban people like me who lead. Um, that's me. I'm done. So I could probably go on. Yeah, you can clap if you like. Is, it, is there any questions, any thoughts, any comments? And please do bring comments if you feel like you've got something that you want to add in that's sort of resonated and stuff. Yeah, go on, Jamie. I've got a question. Just at the very end, I've got a right moment who I really can't work out what you're good at. Let's do something. My mum always said everyone's good at something, and these four guys crap at everything. What do you, what, have you had a situation that I'm trying so hard? Other people chip in here, please do. Um, but for me, I'd, I'd suggest that maybe he needs more people around him because maybe what he's, maybe that'll emerge, mate, as as he's amongst others. There's not just you, and there's, and there's sort of others that maybe he'll sort of grow amongst, and and, and his gifting will maybe be drawn out in that sense. And I think the the hard answer to that question is it's just time, isn't it? I think the sad thing is what this poor guy's. Yeah. And what I'm realising, actually, part of my job is to say no. 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 And it's what painful to hear. That's really oh, important. Oh, what he 
Yeah. He wants, and for some reason, people often want to have men up for Yeah. Want all the gifts they have got. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah. How do you unpack that kind? Or have you had experience of unpacking that kindly? I think it just takes time of being in relationship with each other, doesn't it? It. Like, nice. Yeah, and, and, the, and I think it's really good, Jamie, what you say about saying no to people, saying, don't, it's not you, that's not what you... Like, to have the courage to say that, I think, is really important. Go on, sorry, Luke. Were you going to say something? Uh, no, no, no. What I was just going to say is, is that, that I think it's about, number one, it's about showing the love. Number two, I think it's about, maybe he might be good at just making a brew, mm. or washing the pots. Yeah. It, it, it needs to look simple things. We, we have people in our church um, that think that they've got, you know, the great, like I said, the greatest gifts in the world and they want to do all this. But actually it's about, no, we're going to get you to vacuum the carpet or we're going to get you to mop the kitchen floor or do the simple stuff. Mm. And that way, I think you, you build, you build their confidence, you build their and work by starting literally starting at the bottom, doing the, the really I mean just not if they're so eager to do something, they'll do it, they'll clean the toilets, they will do anything <coughs> just to be a part of whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. We've got the job as a team, we've got the sack. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so Go on, Danny, go on. <laughs> go on, Danny, yeah, go on. And you were saying how the guy's got a heart of gold, and I'm just wondering if he shows that heart of gold to the other people, like in the vicinity, in the church family, do they love him? Do they appreciate his heart of gold like you do? No, no, probably not. He's odd. He's odd. So he's now been banned from talking to young people. He's really having a battle with it. He'd be great at older church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think what you said about getting people around him, I think that's sometimes the creative culture. Yeah. That actually loves people. Just let him know that it's a time for him to just rest in with God whilst God shows him what his calling is yeah. rather than him relying on the church to tell him what the calling is. Mm. Yeah, and just loving him because he'll hate it. I think the hierarchy <laughs> of big churches and how to work with the way we create structures where certain roles are more valuable and yeah. more mm-hmm. celebrated yeah. than other roles. Yeah. I think it, it, what you just said, basically what you said, mm. I think it's really helpful to come and think. Anything else, thoughts, comments? Yes, mate, you at the back. Uh, well, not on that subject, so I was going to ask uh, how you would shape uh, the content of a public gathering uh, yeah. in that you're trying to obviously reach on church people, but you don't quite know who's going to turn up yeah, at yeah. So, and you've noticed I'm not filling lots of the details of some of our specific activities because I want you to sort of fill in those blanks because some of those things are going to translate some on. But yeah, Sunday worship. Yeah, yeah. Sunday worship is starts at three o'clock, has three coffee breaks in it, and for me the two things that I find I I've always had a vision for Sundays are accessible, so that any punter would could come in. Now, bear in mind that it's still going to be difficult for someone to come in, whatever, however informal, however, whether it's a high mass in a Catholic church, it's still difficult. But, but with, because with, we're informal, we're very informal, I still want it to feel like a Christian act of worship. Because if it's a cafe, then let's just call it a cafe. If it's, but it's a public act of worship. So it needs to feel like a Jesus thing, a, a Jesus worship. So we, um, we have three coffee breaks, well at the start, we start with 
notices, obviously. Um, but just, I guess, that that's a point in which people can connect with the rest of the life of the church, to say that it's beyond Sundays. And then we always start with a prayer, and we say, turn to the person next to you, give them your anxieties and worries and pray. You might be an atheist, but it's a time to... And that's a place where we can share our... Uh, deeper things, the darker things. And we sing, we always sing. We don't have a sung worship leader. We have YouTube, we use YouTube videos. Um, and then after that, we'll have testimonies. I've nabbed this from the Pentecostals that we should be testifying every week to what God's done. Whether it's someone, Donna and John's kid coming up saying, I did better in my RE test this week. Or whether it's someone saying, I've been free from alcohol for a week this week. Th- there needs to be a space in which we recognize the lows in our life at the beginning and praying recognize that God's at work and then we'll have another song and then we'll, we'll go into what we call learning time which is basically a sermon it's got to be interactive it's got to be rooted in this this is our starting point we're ex- expounding this we're explaining this um, and but connected our own experience with it and, and so it's got to be interactive it's about 15 minutes long learning time the kids go out they've got their own group we didn't have that for a little while we did all age um, learning time uh, and it's interactive. Um, there's no such thing as a rhetorical question in an urban church. Don't ask a question from the front because you'll get an answer, basically, if you don't want one. <laughs> um, and so you use that. You use small group discussion, get people to bounce <coughs> ideas around. And then we always try and increasingly more this last six months, let's create space for spirit to do some stuff. And, and no music. Just let's stand up and have our hands out and wait and let and the spirit empower the words of this in our lives and then we'll have a break coffee break and the kids will come back in and then fortnightly we do communion so we'll have communion and and if not communion then it'll just be a final song and another coffee break at the end and so it should last about 50 minutes often it goes on a bit longer than that but that's the content so it's accessible but it feels like a christian piece of yeah with difficulty mate with difficulty and I'd, th- I'd say often that Sundays isn't our teaching time. You're not going to get your food from a Sunday. You get, you get maybe a snack, for you to, but you, what you're going to need to do is to learn how to follow Jesus on your own as well. And so take that snack and take it with you and then reconnect it in the other discipleship mechanisms throughout the week. Um, but it is difficult that. And I think it'll always be a tension, something we'll never get away from. Because you've got someone in there, like Danny, mate, that he's been coming to church for two weeks now. He's just learning to be, learning who Jesus is. And then someone like my wife, who's been a Christian 25, 30 years. So, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Sort of sort of um, do you know what, actually, we don't, because we, when, there's been a couple of families who, who felt called to join us, haven't there? And we say to them really clearly, this is who we are, so you need to spend some time just watching and then really searching out whether you are called to this. Because, you know, I, there is no passengers in our church. You just can't, it's a small church, you can't be a passenger. If you're here just for the ride, then jog on because we're not interested. And there's other churches that can cater for your needs. But, um, but, but seriously in that though, we say to people, just discern it. Like. And so those guys who've joined us from outside in that sense um, have been through that process and really feel the Lord's called them to us. And, and so in that, we say, you, you, your teaching is going to need to come from other places as well as Sunday. Is. Thanks, mate. It's all right. Any other comments, questions? Very quick, when you were able to break down the, the service really, really clear, how important have you found repetition to be? Do you find that repetition is, it helps it become more accessible? And then in that, when you then want to bring change, how do you navigate, how have you found that? 
I think, yeah, the repetition is really important. I'd suggest that people need repeated rhythms in their lives. Whether it's a tradition of the high mass liturgy in an Anglican church or a Catholic church, or we have our own liturgies in our churches, don't we? Our traditions. I think repeated things are really important. Um, but then I think in a space where it's a bit more informal, it's a little easier to do new things because it is generally a bit chaotic. So, if you, so the Holy Spirit time at the end of learning times, we've started to do that a bit more intentionally the last six months. That's, it's almost like, oh, it's just part of the mess. It's like, it's just, does that make sense? So I think that informality sometimes create a bit more potential to do new things. Um, and we've got a culture of trying stuff, but also be, having permission to stop stuff as well if it doesn't work throughout the week and stuff. Yeah. Any other thoughts, comments? One more. Shall we pray? Yeah. Lord Jesus, you're the king of the earth. And it says in the scriptures that you hold the universe between the palms of your hands. And yet those hands were the ones that were nailed to the cross to buy our salvation. To buy us back. To buy your lost sons and daughters on our estates back. And so in all this, it's your ministry, Lord. Whatever you've called us to, wherever we are, would we hear again your voice of, of kingship, that this is your thing? Would you give us a fresh vision for what you're doing in our communities? Even today, would you recommission us, Lord, with that cheeky grin on your face that says, it's not about you, it's about me, let's do this. Take my hand, let's go. Lord, recommission us. We need you. We resort to self-reliance. We resort to making it about us too often. Lord, we give our lives back to you and give our ministries back to you, Jesus. And we say, would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We just want you to be glorified, Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams.